This is Two Babes Talk Supply Chain, where we interview the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, changes in the industry, and hot topics in supply chain. We answer all your questions and put the sexy into your supply chain. We are your hosts, Sarah and Nick. won't want to miss episode eight where we talk to Shane Cannon all about customs compliance and how not to bankrupt your company. Hello to all of our beautiful listeners. Today is an amazing day. We are talking to two fabulous women that started the MSH district and have helped kickstart many companies. They are going to walk us through offshore versus local manufacturing and how to decide which is best for your business. So Making Shit Happen, or MSH District, they're crazy about helping you making shit ha- make shit happen. Sheena and Monique spent their previous lives in the trenches of the Canadian fashion industry, working with major brands and retailers, traveling the world, learning the ropes, and getting the inside scoop on what it takes to succeed in today's market. Realizing that their passions were in helping others, it was time to take what they knew and translate their expertise and contacts into a powerful platform to help build, help people build cool shit and launch their dreams. And so MSH District was born. Sheena is the chief of Making Shit Happen, and people say she inspires them to dream big. And Monique Bryan, she is the chief treasure hunter, and people say that she inspires them to be better after she tells it like it is. So welcome, ladies. This is going to be a super fun episode, so let's get started. Thanks for being on the show today. Awesome. Thanks for having us. So, um, can you start by clarifying maybe the difference between local and offshore manufacturing? Absolutely. Hi, Sarah. It's Sheena. I think Minnie and I are going to bounce back and forth a little bit, uh, trying to get all your questions answered. So, thank you so much for having us. We're super pumped to be here. So, yeah, manufacturing is like one of these funny things, right? When people start venturing into manufacturing and figuring out how they're going to make their products, they think there's only one way. You take your product to a factory, to a manufacturer, and they make it. But there's so much that goes into the thought process before that really is, well, it could be detrimental or it could be awesome. It's just a matter of if you actually take the right steps before figuring out which is the right manufacturer for you, then you're guaranteed to have success. So I think the biggest thing that we find is that people don't understand that there is a huge difference. Like we're talking catastrophic difference between local and offshore manufacturing. So local is uh, manufacturing in your own backyard, right? Typically in your country. So for us in Toronto, it would be in Toronto, in Canada, or throughout North America. And when you're manufacturing locally, it's awesome because it allows you to be nimble, to be quick. It's right in your backyard. Uh, we really rely on local for a lot of innovative products because it allows you to go and physically visit and work with these places. Um, but local requires you to do all the heavy lifting. You have to source the fabrics. You have to source all of your trims yourself. Some factories and some manufacturers do have resources, but it's very rare. You have to come with finished prototypes. So typically your first prototypes are made by somebody else, not the manufacturer. You have to come with patterns. You know, like you're doing all the heavy lifting. 
offshore. So that's typically when you're working, you know, most people consider it China. When you're working in Asia, China, Bangladesh, India, those are like the main hubs where a lot of bulk manufacturing is done. You can do manufacturing throughout Europe and, and a few other places, but those are typically the big offshore sources. And offshore has you working with a factory who manages the entire process. So when you work offshore, typically, and I'm not going to say this is every time, but you can usually send them a doodle, a sketch, a drawing, a couple of photos, and they will produce a product that looks pretty fucking wicked. So when you're working local, it's awesome because it's in your own backyard. Uh, it makes it a lot easier, a lot quicker. When you're working offshore, though, the odds of uh, you getting something much quicker because these guys are... They're helping you to source the fabrics. They're helping you to put all the pieces together. You know, if you want some smart fabric, if you want something that's innovative, if you want something that's never been done before, you don't have to be the one to put all those pieces together. That manufacturer can do that for you. So, yeah, that's that's really the difference. And there's a lot of things to consider on when you're deciding on which one to go forward with. Yeah, so those are those are really great points and it sort of takes me into my next question. I mean, you've covered off some of the some of the pros and a few of the cons for local versus offshore, but what are typically um, those considerations? What are the pros and cons of each? Well, um, this is me speaking. Um, there's there's such a laundry list, really. I mean, I think like local one of the key pros of doing it locally, like Sheena was saying, is um, the speed. Your ability to go into the factory, like it's down the street or it's a train ride away or a car drive away, um, and speak with your manufacturers and see your things being made on the machine in real time. When there's a problem that arises, a manufacturer can call you up, you can go and visit. You can constantly go and see your production happening. You can, you can see your samples being made and give feedback. That is a huge, huge advantage for doing it locally. Um, it's really, as an, like if you're a new startup or an entrepreneur, that's what gives you the advantage over some of the larger companies is that you're able to pivot at a moment's notice and it won't disrupt everything that a manufacturer is doing. Whereas if you were doing, if you're over, uh, manufacturing offshore and you get your sample and you're like, oh man, I really wish the sleeve was different. It's not as simple as you send an email or you pick up the phone and say, you know what, I need all the sleeves to be like this now. When you're working offshore, they've got thousands and hundreds of thousands of units going through their factory. So things are already on the machine. Things are already happening. It costs them millions of dollars to stop something uh, mid-production for you to go and make a change. So if you've never been over offshore, if you've never gone to a factory in the country you're trying to produce it in, you are at a huge disadvantage. Um, I, I have a quick question here, actually, if I could just step in. When you're dealing, let's say, with um, a client or a vendor overseas, offshore, is it recommended that you should actually go and visit their facility before you actually start? Or would most of these transactions and deals be done by, like, emails or phone calls or... Would you actually have to fly overseas and, and want to see what they're going to be doing? That's, that's such a great question. It's something we get asked quite a bit. Um, and people, I've, you know, I've, I've met people who've never been to their factory and they produce things. Um, it's my experience that if you don't go and see what's happening over there, 
you could be setting yourself up for some huge, huge, um, rude awakening. Um, I absolutely think it's essential you go and see who's making your product for a variety of reasons, not just that you're getting what you want at the speed that you need it, but that they're actually even manufacturing it in the, in the facility that they say that they are. Because a lot of factories subcontract out. So you don't even know if it's so far off. You don't even know who's making it. And there's been numerous incidences that we've heard, even from like clients that we've worked with, that you know they're saying they're making it in this factory that's up to code and all of those things, and they'll go over there and visit and find out that they were actually paid to say those things. Wow. Um, yeah. And go ahead. The, um, the other side of that is too like the a lot of the clients that we're working with don't come from the fashion industry. It's really difficult to build cool shit. If you, when you have zero idea of actually how it goes together, the people that are coming up with these really wicked, innovative, cool, revolutionary products, well, they're usually trying to build something that's never been done before. But if you don't understand manufacturing and product development and how things go together in a certain order, you could be building useless shit that doesn't work. It's like we, it's really imperative for you to, if you can't get, you know, to China, get to a factory somewhere. Go somewhere and see what's happening, how big the facility is. So when you're losing your shit that you aren't getting a response in, you know, two hours' time or they're not able to turn up a sample in 24 hours, it's because it's a massive operation. Just like what Monique was saying, you know, like they're pumping out thousands and in some cases millions of units. So it's it's so much better if you can go there and touch and feel it, meet the people firsthand. It will give you a new perspective on why things take as long as they do, why they cost what they do, you know, how things actually work, which just make you a smarter, better business person and actually gives you the ability to create better products. So there's a lot of reasons why you really need to be visiting the factories. Yeah, and yeah. that, you know, that's totally, you know, all about, you know, the self-education part of entrepreneurship, like, and, and getting out there and touching and feeling and, and making sure what you're, what you're doing and what you're making is aligned with your values and, and what you're doing in business. So I guess that's a great segue into the next question. So what are some of the key questions a business should ask themselves before making the big decision of going offshore versus local for their manufacturing? Well, I think, Sarah, you just kind of nailed it. Like, what is the number one thing you should be asking yourself is, who, what does your customer want, Right. Because at the end of the day, the values of your brand is really what will decide where you're going to be manufacturing. Like, does your customer, like, do they value that it's made locally? Because if that's who you're saying you are and it's not made here, then what are you really doing? Yeah. I mean, so it starts there. And another thing that you want to ask yourself is just, like, where are you headed? Because I find that... Like, honestly, they don't ask themselves, they don't look far out enough into the future to this, so they know how to align themselves with what, where they're headed. So if, if they're trying to create something in volume, in mass, and they, they're going to need hundreds of thousands of units, they're going to need something with special machinery. If they don't make that here, in your hometown, then you have no choice but to go somewhere else. It's, and, I mean, it's debatable. You could build your own factory you know, and invest in that. Um, but you also need to know 
long-term, is that a feasible option for you? Is that something you want to be doing? Because we run into this problem a lot. Um, we've got, like, entrepreneurs, for instance, who want to build, like, shoes. There's not a, I don't know many people in Canada who are making shoes in volume here, especially if they're specialized. So they have to think long-term, where are we headed? Um, and there's not enough planning that happens before they start making that decision. So it's really about laying out the entire game plan. And another thing is just where are the holes? Just like Tina was saying, we work with a lot of people who don't have a background in product development or fashion. And it's just like in any other business you're building. If you don't have the skill set and you don't know what you're doing, you better get aligned with the people who do. So it's like what, who do you need on your team to get you where you're going? Yeah. And, you know, the other really important factor here, too, is, you know, your distribution. You know, what what does that look like? Are you going to be Absolutely. selling it just in time? Well, if you're selling it just in time and you're doing it offshore, you're going to have to buy enough inventory and, you know, store it to be able to fill, fulfill those orders. Or, you know, is local a lot better for you so that you can fulfill just in time inventory because it it literally comes from down the street or, you know, comes from another town just a little ways away. Um, that, that's critical, critical. And I think another another thing that, you know, people don't understand is just, you know, you can go offshore and then have the, your manufacturer source all of the different pieces for you. That's possible. But like Shane was saying, if a lot of people are building new things that haven't been done yet. So if you're getting a smart fabric that can only be developed in Europe and you're getting these most amazing buckles that are only made in, like, Brazil, and then you've got your manufacturer over there in China, it's like all of these pieces need to be thought of before you decide where you're going to have this manufacturer because then you're just incurring costs and shipping all over the place. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So then um, I guess why don't you take us through some of the key takeaways? I mean, here, here's where I'm going to tell our audience that the MSH District and Sheena and Monique have been kind enough to put together a freebie specifically for our audience on local versus offshore manufacturing. And we want to thank you guys for doing that because uh, it's going to bring a lot of value to our audience. But so why don't we go over some of the key takeaways that you can give our audience about working offshore? So, you know, I love this conversation because we find a lot of people that think offshore is the only option, right? You know, building anything local costs too much money. It's, you don't have the resources and that is just simply BS. It's just, it's, it's the old business. So we always like to talk to people about offshore, how big it is, how scary it is, because really we should all be starting local. So I just want to start off with saying that because we drive everybody to start local. If you have zero idea of what you're doing in terms of manufacturing product development, that whole sector of your business, you want to keep it local and keep, be able to keep your finger on the pulse. But when you are... Uh, kind of building out what your supply chain is going to look like and tackling the manufacturing side of it, you really need to look at, at both areas, just like Monique was saying, right, from a scalability perspective. You know, are you always going to stay local? Are you going to potentially open your own manufacturing? Are you going to grow and go offshore? And so really the things, I think, with going offshore, first and foremost is, like, you need to find out can you, where can your product be made? 
like Monique was saying, with shoes and with some wearable items and some really specialty products, not everything can be made locally. We just don't have the resources here anymore. It's unfortunate. So where can your product be made? Can it be made here? And if it can't, then you scratch that off and you target going offshore. Working offshore, you really need to find uh, a contact and somebody that you can trust to help you to navigate. There are billions of manufacturers offshore, billions. And when you go to the manufacturing sectors in some of these towns, predominantly, like I spent a lot of years in China, visiting and going to these places, you know, you need to have somebody there to help you to navigate that. So, like, that's one of the benefits of working with MSH and with our community is we have hundreds of industry professionals that have those contacts where we can guide you and put you in touch with the right people so that you can start to navigate that. Um, the other thing with offshore is you need to make sure that you've got a bank full of money. And I know that's a little harsh maybe, um, but really, if you don't have a bank full of money, then you need to step back and think about how you're doing things because you're going to have to commit to inventory and product uh, well before you're ever going to see um, sales and inventory and, or sorry, sales and payments from, you know, if, you, if you're working retail. Um, and those are really important things to think about. The last thing that I'm going to touch on uh, in terms of the big, excuse me, takeaways with offshore is timing, not timing to produce. You know, most factories can produce in 30 to 45 days, depending on the complexity. But the timing on getting shit here. Look, not everything comes by FedEx, especially when you're getting into bigger quantities. <laughs> like, guys, take your head out of your ass. It doesn't come here overnight. You know, Canada Post or USPS doesn't just magically drop giant skids of product at the end of your driveway. You mean the stork Look, doesn't come? I thought drones are doing that now, like just dropping skids on the driveway. Come over, just. How often that would be. <laughs> so it's just like this funny thing, right? Like people are like, "Oh, my product takes thirty days to make," and I'm like, "Yeah," and then it takes thirty days to come by vessel, by boat. Yep. Like you guys need to get caught at customs. Oh yeah, and then you're another thirty days, or if it gets dropped in Vancouver and you got to train it across. Like we're used to working with big retailers, big guys like Walmart, where shit gets held up. Stuff happens. You get duties and so many problems that are going to happen. You need to be real and realistic to yourself and to your commitments to customers, retailers, whoever you're dealing with, and what that timeline looks like. That's why supply chain and everything that you guys are doing, Sarah, is so vital. People need to understand this information before you ever even write the first check to the manufacturer. If you don't understand how long it takes and what the whole picture looks like, look, you can write us a check, and we can show you how to burn it real fast. <laughs> right? So those are the key takeaways. Uh, they are probably not the obvious ones, um, but those are the places where you can get burnt. Those are the places where you can get hurt, and those are the places where your, your big, beautiful idea can go up in flames real fast. So I have a question about your second takeaway, and it yeah. comes down to the minimums. So when you're looking yeah. at local versus offshore manufacturing, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but those minimums drastically change. So if you're sourcing locally, the the minimums will be a little bit lower or a lot lower than any offshore minimum that you're going to come across. Is that right? Sounds great. <laughs> it, it, it is, and there's, you know, we spend our whole lives in that business. So 
Well, for me personally, I can say I know a few factories that'll do runs of 100 to 200 pieces. And it's because they're running them out of their sample rooms, right? Their sample rooms are like little mini manufacturers inside of the giant manufacturer, inside of, inside of the giant facility. So there are places that you can get small runs. Problem is when you're dealing offshore and you're asking for small quantities, you're going to get dicked around. Your, your project is going to go to the bottom of the pile. It's going to get, you know, it isn't going to get um, the attention that it requires. So when we used to quote on any project, we would go out with big quantities, 10,000 pieces, and then we would work back. Okay, we're going to buy 10,000 pieces, but we're going to start and we're going to want to get 1,000 pieces first because it's the only way for that factory to take you seriously. When you work local, some factories, because they are local and because business has been tough for so many years, the, the minimums can be high. But the thing with local is you could work with a maker. So a maker is somebody who isn't typically a manufacturer, like in a big facility, but they can produce 10, 20, 50, 100 pieces for you. So there's a lot of flexibility. I think minimums is a, is something to be aware of, but it's not a deal breaker. The things you've really got to just look at is where can my product be made and where do I care to have my product made? Okay, I got to have a thing about working offshore, and so they want to work locally until they realize their shit can't make, be made here. Yeah, I got a question no, here. Other, I, I know you said ahead. you should start locally. Well, first of all, I do want to say I want a bank full of money. I, I would love a bank full of money. <laughs> but um, I know you, you stated to start locally. Now, we live in Canada, and I don't know Canada as being a big manufacturer. So wouldn't it almost be easier going, like, would locally also include the States? Would it be easier going to the States, uh, maybe look at manufacturers in the States before Canada, just because I don't know Canada it's Canada. Canada a huge manufacturing industry. Enlighten me. What do we do here? Oh well, I think gosh. it depends on what you're trying to make, too, right? Like, when you say that Canada's not huge in manufacturing, no, they're not huge like a China or, or an India, not at all. But it depends on what you're making, because there's a lot of people making things here that nobody ever gets to really hear about. And to your point around going to the States, there's a lot of stuff being made in the States, absolutely. There's a lot more local happening. Um, but to Especially say that in New York. York yeah. But to say not started here, like not even to try to start in here, I mean, it, it really, it depends on what you're trying to make. The only things that we typically push to go offshore, but even in those cases, it's not always the case, is footwear. Right? Like footwear and things like uh, winter gloves. And I know that kind of sounds a bit funny, but like building a winter glove, there are a lot of pieces and so it can become very expensive to make it here. But like Montreal is a huge hub, Toronto's a huge hub, Vancouver is a huge hub for manufacturing. Uh, anything from t-shirts, cut and sew, uh, winter outerwear, lots of bags, lots of leather goods. Uh, Montreal has actually been known for its lingerie manufacturing. Montreal used to be like the mecca for manufacturing. A lot of brands, Canadian and North American brands, used to produce in Montreal. Over the last I mean, the week. industry has flown, slowed down yeah, quite a bit. In the last eight years, it's, it's kind of died off, but they still exist. And a lot of big brands like Roots, even though they do a bulk of their manufacturing offshore, they keep quite a bit of business local because it keeps them nimble. It allows them to move and shift, try different things, test, and also as a you know, a great Canadian brand to be able to feed our Canadian economy. 
Well, and that also goes into, you know, almost what you said about the duties is that, you know, if a certain percentage of the garment is made in Canada, um, then there's going to be certain, you know, rules that apply to that. Totally. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We, that's a whole other conversation, Sarah. I think we need to have another conversation. <laughs> well, we are definitely going to have you guys back. This is this is a, a super fun episode. So just into my next question then, are there any other options that businesses can and should consider? I mean, we've talked a lot about local and, and offshore manufacturing. What other options are there out there for these businesses? You know, like everything right now, everything is changing and everything is growing. It's, I think the fashion industry is like one of the last few to really make some some changes and to be rattled, uh, and the entrepreneur is the one that's doing it. And I think, and Monique may agree or disagree on this point, but this, the trend that we're watching that's happening a lot is micromanufacturing. And micromanufacturing, it's, you know, it's just a fancy label that goes on companies that are creating their own manufacturing. And typically we see this happening where, you know, a lingerie company uh, has tried to source locally because local was a deal breaker for her. And I'm talking about a real business. Uh, Local was a deal breaker for her. She couldn't find a factory to produce what she wanted, the quality she wanted. So she said, fuck it, I'm going to build my own. And it comes down to that very first question that we were talking about around, you know, what do you value? What matters to you? And when you figure out what that is, then you go to the wall for it. You know, she wasn't prepared to go offshore because it's like, oh, I can't make it here. No, she decided that she's going to create her own facility. And there's quite a few factories doing or companies doing it. One in particular that is, like, one of my all-time favorite stories is Roby's. You know, the little kids' leather shoes? Yep. You know, like, a couple of moms built that in their garage. And they, they hired a woman who was a home sewer, and they sketched out their ideas and worked with her literally one-on-one in their garage. And they grew it and grew it. They ended up obviously outgrowing their, um, their garage. Huge manufacturing in Vancouver, and they were bought out by Stride Right or, or whatever they are called. But there's a lot of companies that are doing it, and it's like, sure, it may seem scary when you think about manufacturing and what goes into it. But when you're just starting out, what do you need? You need a sewer. You can outsource a pattern maker. Uh, and you need a couple of people to, like, help with the finishing and packaging and getting the product out. But it's pretty simple. And so this is a big trend that we're watching happening. And it's something that I'm very excited and very passionate about because I think it will really revitalize our North American manufacturing industry all by helping entrepreneurs with wicked ideas to actually navigate that space because they don't have fashion backgrounds, so they need more people. They need more experts and, you know, product people to help them to get there. But that's definitely an option. It's an option for everybody. You don't have to have a fashion manufacturing design background to navigate that. What a, That's such an amazing story. I love, and I'm sure you guys hear stories like that all the time. So I guess... Where where do you see, is that where you see manufacturing going in the next ten, five or ten years? Or, like, where do you, what do you see for the future? And, like, what do those challenges look like? I think, I would, well, I, I, would I agree with so. what you said, even though you said it. Monique and I may not agree. I, I do agree <laughs> with what you, of, what, of what you said, um, because 
like what's happening over I mean a lot of people we speak to I mean um, who actually do manufacture things who are in the industry in India China and Bangladesh um, you know a lot of the it used to be a generation after generation you know who would do the same type of work sewing and making things in the factories but the kids don't want to do that over there anymore um, and that's really what it is they want to be designers uh, they don't want to be sitting in a factory making things anymore so it's going to change whether we like it or not because there's not going to be enough people over there who are going to want to make things as if you want to be making it in the fashion industry. And I think that's why, um, you know, like Sheena was saying about the micro-manufacturing uh, happening wherever you want it to happen and all the jobs need, need to come home again anyways. And this is a great way to, you know, foster our economy here. And people are getting that, Especially if you don't, if you don't have a background in fashion, um, you're not limited by what you already know, which is what we love about the people we work with. They don't have it that it has to be made overseas. They're like, well, I can just build one here, can't I? You know, and that's just so refreshing for us. And you know, it's really funny. Something that a lot of people don't know about me is my training, my school training. You know, the the, the fake training is in is in design. So I actually learn how to design products and how to create patterns and how to sew them. And you know, the thing that I think is so beautiful about that, I never wanted to be a sewing machine operator. And freaking kudos to those people, man, because that is the hardest freaking job that there is to make shit look so nice that people actually want to wear it. But what I really loved about it was the understanding of all of the bits and pieces made is why I am where I am today because I broke out you know pattern making and design and sewing and I realized I could make anything and I love the challenge of finding people with big hairy audacious fucking crazy wild ideas for products because I know with those three tools we can make anything and so I think the nice and the exciting part about micro manufacturing is people are getting interested again about uh, product development because it isn't about being a sewing machine operator or being a pattern maker. It's about being a creator, an innovator, a maker of awesome shit. Like, we have makers on our team that are, they're insane. One one woman in particular, like, she's like, I can make anything. And when I first met her, I was like, I was drooling. I'm like, I have a girl crush. I have a serious <laughs> girl crush because I love it. I could make anything. Actually, in my career, I had a side hustle before it was called a side hustle, you know, building stuff for people that had ideas for, you know, a sash for hairdressers and swimming products for babies. And, like, I would make patterns and I would build cool shit because I figured that these things would allow me these skills that I had, I could do that. So it's people, the perspective of being a sewer or being a maker, being a pattern maker is changing. It's, it's evolving. The education system needs to fucking you know, get on the bandwagon and pony up and, and understand what's happening. But it's, it's so exciting. This is the future. People are building cool shit. People are building products that have zero background in fashion. And all of us with the skill in this business, like, it's not about being an operator. It's about building the future. It's about getting your hands dirty into something that could be a multi-billion dollar idea that could change the face of the world. And that's, that's where I think that perspective is going and why micro-manufacturing will be a big piece of the future and the most disruptive thing, I think, in this industry.
I love your passion. It is just it is awesome, oozing it? out. And, you know, I think that MSH District is definitely going to be, you know, a company to watch. But um, from your perspective, what are the other top companies that you're following in regards to supply chain and manufacturing to see what they're up to and uh, that are taking us into the future? Uh, well, there's, well, I call them, or we, we call them the, you know, I think they're household names to us, but we find that they aren't to everybody, but like Manitoba Mucklucks, um, and we have links to all of these in our freebie that we're giving to you guys. Um, my, but Manitoba my number Mucklucks, one, my number one is Intermix. Like, Zara, they're, they disrupted everything on, on the way things are manufactured, how things are put into the store, how, um, customer feedback and how it dictates how they make half the collections like if anybody i'm always watching it's it's them and how they do it yeah i'm just coining a term last week zara ness that's <laughs> awesome like it, it's they take it's just baffling yet so smart um what they do you know it's like they make a few pieces they put it in the store they have their store people get feedback you know from every single thing that they get the feedback from they, you know, make a change, put a few more in the store. If it do, does well, they put in a few more other stores, get the feedback, take it out of the store, do it again. And that, that's how they're so successful. And it's just their way of, like, making many, and they keep a lot of their manufacturing local as well. But it's, like, you know, small little changes adapting to what the customer wants. It's not about seasons and collections. Um, like, don't get me wrong, I love myself a runway and a fashion and a fashion week. But in terms of, like, where things are really going, if it gets seasonless, things are changing so drastically that anyone building any fashion-related product needs to pay real close attention. That is such an amazing example. I love Zara and everything that they do from manufacturing to supply chain. So we're coming to to the end of our episode, and I just Sarah, want... Yeah? Sorry, I really want to throw in one more. And it's sure. As Monique was talking, and we can update our freebie to put them in there as well. But I think something that people really need to be aware of that it's popping up everywhere, uh, which is just like printing, digital printing on a variety of different fabrics. And the reason I think that this is so interesting is because you can print anything, anything that you can come up with, you can print it on fabric, and you can have products made pretty much in the same day. And so they just take giant rolls of fabric, they print out the pattern pieces, it gets cut and made, and it's awesome. But there's a company in Toronto called New Vango, and Dawn is, you know, she's one of our advisors, one of our fucking, like, crazy awesome shit disturbers in this space. And it's just really awesome to see what some of these some of these guys are doing with simple technology of digital printing. And Locally. people are creating whole brands around what you can print on fabric and what kind of products you can make it's pretty much instantaneous you know they're creating a whole culture around these types of products from like leggings and hoodies and you can move quick you can be super nimble and in the world of startup land that is everything and so Nuvango is a really interesting model a brilliant company Dawn's fucking awesome we just love her um, yeah. yeah she's definitely uh, another kind of company using an old technology like it's nothing new but just the way that they're using it to help entrepreneurs really get their things out there and you're and you're not always committing to large 
quantities, right? So you could be making a few pieces and, and keep moving and, and keep fresh. So there's some exciting things happening around, and they're like right in our own backyard. So on that note, why don't you tell us what is coming up next for MSH District? I mean, you're definitely a company to watch. Um, we, we are excited for the future of MSH and just want to know what's, what's in the cards coming up next for you guys. MSH is kicking ass and taking names. That's what's happening next. <laughs> I love you, ladies. This is awesome. <laughs> We're actually launching something real this week, which is pretty exciting. We're like over the moon about It's called Hack It Live. And it's really, you know, we meet all of these entrepreneurs who are like, oh, my God, what do I do next? I don't know what to do. I don't know anything about what I'm doing. Please help me. Right? And there's only two of us. And there's uh, hundreds of them. So what we've decided to do is um, hack their idea, hack their problem um, one-on-one live in a 30-minute strategy session um, for free. For free. And you really just wow. get me and Sheena, like, tell me like it is, whether you like it or not, wherever you're at, um, because that's that's what people really want to hear. They're like, oh, can we, can we sit down and have coffee? Can we pick your brain about something? It's like, yeah, we're going to hack your idea to shit in 30 minutes. <laughs> Get your notepad. And we're going to tell the world about it. We're actually going to broadcast it afterwards. So everyone who may be in the same position, the same boat that you are in, it's going to help a lot of people. And we're going to send it out to everybody. Awesome. That is such a great idea. So innovative. And you are just going to help so many people. I mean, you already do. um, But you're going to be able to reach so many more. And Hack It Live. Hack It Live, baby. That's my plug, sorry. (laughs) Hack It Live. Hack It Live. The the other piece of MSH is our hackathon. So when we launched MSH District, it was all around disrupting how long it takes to build products like typically you're like 12 to 18 months we were like fuck that we could do it in three days so we built this crazy event we brought together 100 advisors 20 people 20 entrepreneurs with cool ideas and we built cool shit in three days we fully enabled our space with makers materials experts and again like hack it live we hacked the shit out of these products and built them in three days and our whole idea is, like, if we can move fast in this industry, we can invite more people who don't have a background in this in this business to really get their heads and their hands onto some products. We can actually start getting it into the marketplace and help more people succeed. So we ran two hackathons, one last April and one this past February. And something to watch for, so sign up at our blog, Making Should Happen, on the MSA District site, is some potential partnerships that we are hacking our way through, uh, you know, we, we see an opportunity to be able to bridge the gap between brands and retailers and these on, uh, innovative entrepreneurs. And so our next hackathon will be coming up in the new year. Uh, and stay tuned because there's going to be some big partnership announcements. You know, we've been chasing and hounding guys like Google and Nike and Lululemon, uh, just to name a few. And, you know, we've got some really big plans for the hackathon. Um, and it's all about... We're huge in spirit and huge in action, and we figure we can be a champion for entrepreneurs and really help them get their products and ideas made and get them in front of the right people. Everybody's going to be making big shit happen. So. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you from my experience, um, because I was lucky enough to be one of the advisors 
at your last hackathon and the and the first hackathon as well. And they are amazing, amazing events. So we're really excited to hear um, the information coming up about that and uh, really excited for what you're doing at MSH. So just want to end it there and say thank you, ladies, for being on the show. It has been so informative. Hold on, Sarah. I, th- I think I heard something today that I just learned. What? Somebody knows Beyonce in this conversation we've been having today. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> I don't know. Who do you think it'd be? Monique? Oh, oh. Sheena? Yeah, that was offline, but um, yeah, I, I want to be auditioning for Beyonce's backup double for her concert. Is that your is that your uh, your bag, your your big, hairy, audacious yeah. soul? Yeah, that's one of them. I've got a few. I mean, some include Oprah and other people, but like Beyonce and I feel like we have a kinship, and she just came out with you know her own kind of athletic line called, I think it's called Ivy Park. Awesome. Um, which is really interesting. So I'm like, hey, her and I, she builds products. I build products. You know. Hey, I'm I'm her. definitely we'll going to... Conquer the world together. <laughs> I'm looking out for that and definitely looking forward to it. So again, thank you, ladies. It's been such a great show and having uh, you on. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. It was a blast. Take care. Icecorp is your supply chain specialist, and they specialize in e-commerce, retail, and dropship distribution. They will provide you with tailor-made solutions that will drive your business and sales forward. To get your free assessment, visit them at icecorp.ca. That is I-C-E-C-O-R-P.ca, And check out their learning center as they have some great free resources waiting for you. What an episode, but it doesn't end here. MSH has put together a free manufacturing guide just for our listeners. You can find it out at twobabestalksupplychain.com. Thank you both Sheena and Monique for such a wealth of info and knowledge on the ins and outs of manufacturing. Stay tuned for our next episode. It's going to be just as fun as we have Andrew and Gina from iLevel Debating about their difference in positions in supply chain and logistics and how they split their roles. You won't want to miss this debate. Have a good one, and just remember, ship happens.